Our reading today is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, and it is the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5. And we are starting at the first verse. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So then, Jesus has been all over Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And to a people who were fixated with signs, Jesus accompanied the gospel preaching with miraculous healings. People who were paralysed got up and walked after Jesus gave the command. And those who were possessed by demons, which caused all kinds of physical problems, had the demons flee in terror at the presence of God the Son. At some point after this, we find Jesus, the Master, addressing his disciples in the most famous sermon in history. And as I say, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. There's another account in Luke's Gospel in which Christ's message is very similar. Now, I don't know whether they are the same sermon relayed in different ways or different addresses but with Jesus going over many of the same teachings in each. Both are possible, both make sense, and it's not possible for us to agree on one or the other right now. If the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous in history, then the first part of it is possibly the most famous out of the whole sermon. We know this as the Beatitudes. Beatitude means happiness. In this case, promises of happiness. Each verse begins with, blessed are. And he goes on to list apparently different groups of people who are blessed or who shall be blessed. Well, I hope today to expose the world's understanding of these verses as false and present them to you as words of love from a bridegroom to his bride, the church. I want to impress on you that these pronouncements do not refer to different groups of people in the world, but rather they all refer to the one group of people, God's elect. And in particular, their journey through this world as God deals with them in mercy. 
So why, why do I say the world has misunderstood the meaning of the passage? Well, that's what I want to do for each of these phrases. I want to tell you what it doesn't mean, then what it does mean. Because it's wrong having the words of the Son of God, which are intended for his children, falsely applied to the children of darkness. Our Saviour's audience here was made up of professing believers. He calls them the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and children of the Father in heaven. So let's look at the very first saying. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. The world would undoubtedly think it would be better if Jesus had meant poor in material terms. That sounds better, as if Christ was saying, don't worry if you have no money, cheer up. I'll make you feel happy, uh, a sort of a consolation, so they wouldn't feel miserable in their poverty. I mean, how the world wants these blessings for themselves. <laughs> and many who profess to know Christ encourage this. They want to be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Therefore, everything they intend to say to the world is framed so that it pleases the hearers. This is why they preach a social gospel, one which exalts man's works, one which is another gospel, not the power of God unto salvation. And they, they try to reassure poor people that Jesus loves them and wants to help them, thereby giving people false assurance. No, this has got, this has got nothing to do with lack of money. It is poor in spirit. These are they who experience spiritual poverty. That is, they feel their unworthiness before God. These are they who've had their eyes opened by God. So they get a glimpse of his holiness and their sinfulness. And, the, and this is not the experience only of those who God is converting, but of the converted also. The believer may, like Paul, feel joy and much assurance. Yet that one who was the chief of the apostles saw himself as the chief of sinners. Now, are you one of Christ's? Do you feel what Paul felt? The holy mixture of joy and sorrow. Then to you comes Christ's promise right here. The kingdom of heaven is yours. And whether the Bible speaks of the kingdom as being within you or around you or present or future, it's one kingdom. And if you're in, you're in for all eternity. Let's press on to the next one in verse 4. It says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. They that mourn. Now, we associate mourning with death. We mourn when someone we care about dies. And no doubt the world likes to think that Jesus is looking down on them at times like that. And I'm sure their sad delusion even gives them comfort. But it's all in their imagination. Quite a number of years ago, I went to a funeral of a family member. No, no one so close that it upset me too much. It was, as all my family's funerals are, in an Anglican church. The vicar was a woman, and she spoke about this deceased uh, relative, who, of course, she'd never met, 
And what a eulogy. What a great woman this was, we were told. And the family loved it because there was no reference to sin, righteousness or judgment. The family was promised that the old girl was now in heaven with Jesus. So yes, this foul-mouthed, blaspheming hater of God was now in his presence forever. And more than that, we were assured by this priestess that we were all going to join her one day. I mean, how I kept my tongue that day, I don't know. It was, it was really only the wise counsel of an older brother in Christ that kept me from marching back down there that evening and telling her what a utter deceiver she was. But who's the family going to believe? An ordained, academically qualified vicar in the Church of England or some wet behind the ears lad in the family who says strange things about being saved and born again? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you can guess. So the world and its false apostles would like to claim this verse too to talk about how God will be there for anyone who mourns over the death of someone they love. But again, the world is wrong. This has nothing to do with death. This pronouncement by our Saviour speaks of those who mourn over sin. Those who mourn particularly over their own sin. This mourning can be just as bitter as when we mourn about a death. It's speaking particularly about those who mourn because God is beginning to deal with them in order to usher them into his sheepfold. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah when he had a vision of God on his throne? He said, woe is me, for I am undone. And this is just a vision. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like crying because of your indwelling sin? Yeah? Well, join the club. No? then you need to take a hard look at your profession. I mean, our experiences of these things, the, the depth of feeling we have does vary greatly. I accept that. But if you have no experience of mourning over your sin, you cannot be a child of God. Maybe you stuck your hand up in the air at a meeting as a teenager and got baptised, or maybe you went to church and got confirmed. I don't know. But examine yourself rigorously to see whether you are in the faith. There are other reasons for mourning apart from our own sinfulness. There is the sin of the world. We mourn. There's such wickedness around us. And we sometimes forget that God's in control. And we panic about the way the world is going. And there's also mourning over sins amongst professed believers around the world. The second letter to Peter says that because of the behaviour of some who call themselves Christians, the way of truth will be mocked. And then there are the believers you know. You might mourn because of their sin. Some, some sinful habit they're, they're trapped in. Now, by the way, you could try to talk to them about it, but be prepared for a backlash. Most don't like to think they've been doing things wrong. And, you, you've, got, and you've also got to remember when you, when you do uh, point the finger at somebody, you have to be aware of your own 
false too. You need to be aware that concentrating mostly on the sins of other people is absolute poison. It is poison. It creates a self-righteous attitude. It kills grace. And it means you cannot esteem others better than yourself. But to you who know all too well what it is to mourn over your sin, who look forward to that future state when your sinful flesh will become dust, you have Christ's promise that you will be comforted. Our kind Saviour will draw near to you and say, Forgiven. And the very name of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is the Comforter, the one who comes alongside you. The Word of God gives you tremendous comfort in its gospel promises. And when we break bread together, we can look with the eye of faith to the prints of the nails in the Lamb's hands and feet and take comfort from his words. It is finished. Every sin paid in full. Let's have a look now at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Well, maybe it means those people in the world who are quiet and smile all the time. Well, I know quite a few nuns who fit that description. And uh, One TV commentator said uh, about the Pope how meek he looked as he climbed the steps, as if that showed how close he was to God. Of course, this verse is meant for those who are of the elect of God. You know, as we've seen, being a quiet person in itself means nothing. Meek-looking nuns and and priests have tortured uh, people, even other nuns, and and the the popes who look uh, meek, as they stand there making their pronouncements, they have in the past ordered the slaughter of millions of the Lord's people. And remember, most serial killers are normally of the quiet type. So true meekness then is that which is only found in one who the Lord is dealing with in mercy. It is a humility which can only come from those who know something of the reality of their sin and their utter reliance on God. It's an absence of pride which the world cannot have because they still believe there is something in them deserving of reward with God. He who exalts himself shall be abased or humbled, Matthew says later on. But he who abases himself shall be exalted. So be of a quiet spirit. Be slow to anger. Repay evil with kindness. So what is the promise held out to the one called of God out of this world? Well, the earth itself. Now We might be strangers in this earth now, but a new paradise earth is promised where the saints will walk in new incorruptible resurrection bodies. It's possible that Jesus instead meant that it is only the saved who are the rightful owners of the present earth. Or perhaps it was an allusion to the ancient promise to the Hebrews that they would inherit all the land of Canaan. That would, that would certainly strike a chord with this audience. But one thing is sure, the eternal future for God's church 
surpasses anything you or I can imagine. Verse 6. The fourth of Christ's promises goes like this. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The only righteousness the world cares for is its own. The carnal mind cannot tolerate the thought that they are, you know, bad people. Just ask them. Go into the local pubs, go on the internet and just ask people, are you a bad person? And Christian, you will be amazed at how few sinners there are in this world. Is it the whole world who is addressed with this blessing? If, if the people in this world have their own righteousness, their own inherent goodness, then why would they hunger and thirst after more? Some might decide they want more of this thing, they want to be more holy. So they start going to church and they'll start to, you know, spot sin in others and rebuke them for their ungodly behaviour. They might even stop smoking and drinking, which makes them really spiritual. In other words, utter religious hypocrisy, you know. I'd rather, I'm serious, I'd rather some Christians would take up smoking than do some of the things they do. Well, the righteousness spoken of here then is something altogether different. It is not the filthy rags of righteousness which men create themselves. It is the righteousness of another, one whose character and behaviour shows his righteousness to be perfect. It is the righteousness of God's darling son, Jesus Christ. Now when God gave men his laws at Sinai, it was the purpose of these that it would expose men's sin. Not one man has ever kept God's laws, even for one minute, until the incarnate Son of God came, that is. And he kept every aspect of the law, all the time. And in doing this, while in the likeness of human flesh, he proved his divine nature. Now, all men need Christ's righteousness, but not all want it. Only those who were predestined unto salvation had their sins remitted at Calvary. And only those who were redeemed at Calvary will have this hunger for Christ's righteousness. That's the way it is. God, in his absolute control of this universe, has ordered all events in history to bring his chosen ones into existence. And at some point in their life on this earth, he comes and touches them with saving power and converts them. Everyone is given a sense of their need. They come to realise that they're in a state of spiritual starvation and they hunger and thirst after Christ's perfect righteousness. Now you have to remember, folks, most people aren't hungry or thirsty in that way. Most people are on the broad road which leads to destruction. And few are on that road which leads to eternal life. That's the way it's always been. Why do you think all those thousands of people ignore the open air preachers in town? Why do you think there's so little response from people in the streets around the churches? Because there's no hunger for Christ. We are commanded to take the gospel out to everyone. But... 
when we spread the good news, is it good news to everyone? Of course not. For some, the Apostle Paul says, the gospel you present them with, it's like a stench of death in their nostrils. But to others, it's what they've been waiting for. To them, it is good news. These are the ones who have known a desire to partake of Jesus' blood and righteousness. And to them he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Here then is Jesus' promise that those in whom God instills a hunger for his son shall be filled. Not partial righteousness to be perfected in glory, but present and perfect righteousness. For you believers are accepted wholly in the beloved. What about this verse? 7, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The merciful, who are they? I'm sure you'll know by now that it's not going to be anything to do with some high court judge showing mercy to an accused man and gaining merit with God even though the world can sometimes show mercy. But knowing that this address is about the Lord's people, how does it differ? It it doesn't even mean that God will save people who show mercy to others. This is about those who've been converted. You see the pattern here. We've looked at those who are made to see their spiritual poverty. We've seen how they mourn at their state. They come in meekness of spirit. And hungry and thirsty, they are filled by the righteousness of Christ. And now, the convert is a new creation. He sees things as they are from God's viewpoint. He's transformed in a way that he does things like Christ. He shows mercy to others But these works are done in Christ's name. He shows mercy where the worldling would not to those who hate him. He loves those who revile him. He understands that were it not for God's mercy and grace, he would be in the place of the sinner he's trying to help. Mercy has always been a highly regarded virtue in the scriptures. The Lord said through Hosea, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, I'd rather you showed mercy than offered sacrifices. And James says that if you don't show mercy to others, God will show no mercy to you at the judgment. So do you believers understand mercy? Are you compassionate towards others? Not the people you like, but the people you don't like. The people you, dare I say it, despise or hate. And you'll... You'll protest, brother, I don't hate anyone. And I say, what about so-and-so? You say, them, yeah, well, we don't get on. I don't wish them any harm. But, you know, if I never see them for the rest of my life, I wouldn't be bothered. Well, that's not really love. The, The world can do better than that. If mercy is about not retaliating, not treating them like they've treated you, but showing love to those people, then that's what God wants from you. 
Love or mercy might be a feeling, but it's proven by doing things for others, as we've seen very powerfully in John's letters. The one who shows mercy will receive mercy. But this isn't just about the judgment. We receive mercy in conversion. We receive mercy at the end, but we also receive mercy now. We receive it when we approach his throne in prayer. We receive it in the material things he provides for us each day. And in the strength that he gives us when we're tempted. He is all mercy. The Psalms say that his mercy endureth forever and is great above the heavens. The world, you must understand, shows compassion simply from a sort of tenderness of of nature. We, however, do it out of love, not just for our fellow man, but for God. It, It is our duty above everything else. And we find in Christ... Mercy that the world knows nothing of. Verse 8 then. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Do we find them in the world? Well, maybe we see those who think themselves to be pure. We do hear of those who have a heart of gold. But when you assess them by God's standards, their heart is far from pure. What does God see when he looks down on the sons of men? Let me quote. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's from Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. So, He didn't see any who were pure in heart then. So who are they? In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, it says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The only people on this planet who are pure in heart are those who have had a heart transplant performed by God. He takes their stony, rebellious heart and gives them a new one. Not only are the saints the only ones with pure hearts, but their hearts are perfect. Now, while we're in these bodies of death, we feel a pull of temptation all day. We think of ourselves as carnal because we know what's right, but then don't do it. And we know what's wrong, and that's the thing we go and do. But as I said a few weeks ago, there is within us a new nature, one born of above, one that is perfectly holy, sanctified, and blameless. A new man or new woman who is washed in Jesus' blood and clothed in a robe of his righteousness. Listener, are you not in God's kingdom today? If so, then your heart is in the same corrupt state as when you were conceived. Deceitful. Desperately wicked. And you know the sad thing? You can never change it. Try as you might. Make all the resolutions you want. Turn over a new leaf. Do charity work. Commit yourself to the church. None of this or anything else will give you a new heart. Only God can give you a new heart. And he does it to whoever he will. To you I'll just say this one thing. Repent. And believe the gospel. 
If God, by his grace, gives you the gift of faith, then you will join the body of Christ, the church of God. And you'll partake in things I've been speaking of. And you'll see God. I don't just mean in the world to come, but now. We see him now. Not with our physical eyes, for he is a spirit. Not in a vision either. But we see him with the eyes of faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8, 8 and 9. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We see God the Son with the mind's eye. And we love him. If you've never experienced love for Christ, you might wonder how you can love someone you've never seen. Well, we meet him in the Bible. We meet him in the preaching of the gospel. And we enjoy a meal with him each Lord's Day around his table. Can't explain it anymore, really. Just tell you what a joy it is. Anyway, let's press on to verse 9. Verse 9 says... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The peacemakers. Here's one the world loves again. Fancy Jesus himself blessing the work of all the peacemakers around the world, eh? All those United Nations employees and soldiers, all those diplomats, all those religious ones in the false ecumenical movement, all commended by Jesus Christ. One of the worst examples I've seen of this was in one of the Queen's speeches. And she talked of the United Nations peacekeepers in some war zone or another. And you know, she quoted this verse from the Bible. Can you believe it? Now the people she referred to have nothing to do with this scripture. But neither do I mean that man can in any way make peace between himself and God. But that is God's work. Sure it does refer in a general way. To the way Christians make peace between men. It's right that we promote peace. When we answer angry people in a meek way. We turn away their wrath. We should seek to live peaceably with all men. Wherever possible. And we should do so even more to the brethren. Those in the household of faith. But primarily. The peacemakers are those who proclaim The gospel of peace. By spreading the gospel, they are being used by God to point people to the way of repentance. And the result of this work is that peace is made between men and God through the work of the mediator, Jesus Christ. The good tidings that we we spread is called in Romans the gospel of peace. And blessings are promised to those who publish it or proclaim it. To these is the promise made that they shall be called the children of God. Imagine that. A child of God. The world, of course, is convinced that we're all God's children. And when the false prophets in the churches deceive people the way they do, it's no wonder they think this way. After all, if you're told by some religious guy in a dog collar that God loves everyone and Christ died for everyone... He wants to be everyone's friend. Um, Of course people will believe that they're all God's children. Why do you think when even thugs and gangsters die, we get these daft little poems in the newspaper columns saying, 
Don't worry now, lad. You're with Jesus and Grandad now, all watching the football together. Most people have such a sickly, sentimental picture of God painted for them by certain preachers that they reason that a God who loves them so much couldn't possibly consign them to eternal damnation. I think it's a fair assumption, given what they've been told. Sadly, they are all children of wrath, children of the devil. But we who have been born again by the Spirit of God are truly children of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The man, woman or child who has been made a new creature in Christ is a child of God. And they are the only ones who can aptly call him Heavenly Father. And to these alone belongs all the inheritance God has prepared for them. Finally then we come to the last of our promises. Verses 10 and 11 are similar so I'll treat them in one. In one go. It says... Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Persecution. Reviling. Slander. These things are common in the world. Everyone has been the subject of hate from time to time. Sinful human nature makes sure of that. But I'm sure you get the picture by now. This does not apply to just anyone simply because they've suffered. The world has its own heroes like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King must be in the world's top ten. Both of these men have suffered. And rightly or wrongly both were persecuted because of what they believed in. But our text says persecuted for righteousness' sake. All kinds of people have suffered persecution. Jews and Arabs, blacks and whites, atheists and religious people. But if they are not the righteous, if they are not disciples of Christ, then these blessings are not for them. Even those who belong to religious cults and false religion, but who call themselves Christian, are not meant the Russellites, or Jehovah's Witnesses, as they falsely call themselves, Mormons, Roman Catholics, members of the Eastern Orthodox Church, these all have been maligned and persecuted at some point by people who believed they were Christians. And very few, if any, were so. Only those who have the righteousness of Christ are meant. The blessing is for them alone. I wouldn't wish suffering on any kind, uh, of any kind, uh, on, on a brother Christian. But the fact is that if you spend your life doing God's work, you will be reviled and you will be persecuted to some degree. When I've spoken in the past to some older Christians and they have no knowledge of these things, I have to wonder, what have you been doing all your life? Without a doubt, some professing Christians have spent their whole lives just going to church each week. Does that describe you? And it's time to ask yourself some hard questions. 
Opposition from the world is inevitable, and it's usually in proportion to how hard you work. The, the more you tell the world about Jesus Christ and him crucified, uh, the more abuse you'll experience. But don't faint with fear. Take heart. Do things. Accept the flag and receive a blessing from your Redeemer. So to close then, in these promises we've looked at people who God is working with at every stage. From the first feelings of despair over sin to the gift of righteousness and finishing with those things which are the mark of one who is going on with God. And for each stage, blessings are handed out freely by the Redeemer. And the last blessing in this passage is the promise of a future reward prepared by Christ for all those who love God. Blessings which are beyond our imagination. Amen.